learn marketing, invest in copywriting, and understand your own skills, because this will help you improve your business success and get to where you want to go faster. These are some of the core messages that Daniel Marcos talks about in my interview with him, which we talked about how he built Growth Institute and the journey he took to get there. Growth Institute is what is today based on the experience that Daniel's had over the last 20 years building a business. Growth Institute is about scaling with impact and reducing drama. And if you want to reduce your drama, you need to look at how Growth Institute and tools like that can help you educate your employees, educate your executive team, so that you can get to where you need to be going quicker, faster and with less drama. That's the message. Listen out for some of the things Daniel talks about, about the entrepreneur's journey, about how he created a business based on his knowledge, but how he worked out that actually there was a better way of doing what he did. And as I would always say, one of the key messages he talks about is hire a coach because the coach helps him get to where he wants faster than ever. Enjoy the show. And as always, if you have questions or comments, please let me know. It's phil at igniumconsult.com. And please, as always, share this podcast with other people. Who else do you know that can benefit from these conversations? Who else do you know that is investing in their business, wants to scale, and also needs to reduce their drama as they go? Enjoy the show. As always, let me know what you think. So welcome to the Sparks by Ignium podcast. My name is Phil Rose. I'm the host of the Sparks by Ignium podcast. As you know, this show is about how do we rekindle your passion, reignite your spark and help you scale your business for the future. And today I'm with a giant of the scaling up industry, Daniel Marcos from Growth Institute. Daniel is co-founder of Growth Institute. And today I'd love to explore with him some of the stories about what it's taken to build his business, how he's got to where he is now, and also to explore some of his other entrepreneurial ventures over the last 20 years of him working in business. So Daniel, welcome to the show. Phil, thank you very much. Super excited to be here. Thank you. And, and Daniel, it's half past seven in the morning for you. So you're in Austin, Texas. Um, you've got your coffee there. That's what I'd like to see. Yeah, I, 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 but by the way, I'm in Mexico City today. Ah. Uh, I'm at my parents' place. Um, I'm uh, kind of on a vacation with them, just visiting my parents for some days. Uh, they have a board meeting here tomorrow and then I'll fly back. Well, I'm impressed. So you're on the same time zone as Austin in that case. Yes, Mexico City and Austin. So Mexico, we have, we always said we're blessed to have the U.S. next to us and we're cursed to have the U.S. next to us. <laughs> Works in both ways. That's that. yeah. And obviously from your perspective in that case, so you, 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 you live most of the time in Austin, uh, Mexico City. When did you found Growth Institute and where did you found it? So I became a CEO coach uh, with Burns Scaling Up Coach uh, 2009 uh, when I got certified. And I started coaching clients mostly in Latin America. Uh, okay. I was based in Mexico back then. Um, and I was uh, serving people in Mexico. And then I started going to Central America and some other countries in Latin America. And I, it, it was great. Uh, I was very, very happy doing it. Uh, I love what I do, the coaching and doing the sessions, everything. But my flying was really, really bad. I was the only coach in Latin America back then. Um, so I was flying every week to a different country in Latin America. Um, and like my second or third year uh, coaching, I flew 200,000 miles just wow. in Latin America uh, in, in a year. So it was great, but it was a lot. Um, and by the way, I was, every time I was going on a plane, I was giving all these books to my clients that I was implementing scaling up. But I said, hey, you have this problem with hiring. You have to do top grading. And then you have this problem with leadership. You have to do least wise and multipliers. And I was traveling in, in all these airports with all these books, giving away to my clients. 
and they never read them. And I was like, guys, please, I carry the book. Please use it. Read it. No one read it. No, you read it. So I had a conversation with Vernon and said, hey, I'm going to do scaling up in Spanish. So I told her you have to do scaling up in English. And Vernon was too busy and was just, uh, you know, his presentation, everything. And I said, hey, can I do it in Spanish? And Vernon said, yeah, yeah, go and do it in Spanish. So I did scaling up in Spanish first. Um, it was recorded by me. And I teach Rockefeller Habits uh, back then. Okay. Um, Need Scaling Up was not even published yet. Uh, it was called Rockefeller Habits, and I teach, teach Rockefeller Habits in Spanish. And Vern saw the power and like the, the importance of doing it. Yeah. And um, then I, one day, by the way, Vern came to Mexico. Okay. Uh, we had a summit here. We had two summits, Mexico City and Monterrey. One day Mexico City, one day Monterrey. Uh, and we had like 1,500 people within both summits. And at the airport between one city and the other, uh, the system went down and we had to be in the airport at like 3 a.m. in the morning. Indeed, quick story. We landed Monterey like at 5 a.m. Yeah. and Vern keynote was at 8 a.m. And we haven't even seen the place. So we went straight to the place, did our rehearsal. Vern went, took a shower and then came back and went live completely without sleeping. Wow, wow, that's pretty impressive. And, yeah. and that's when we started talking about Growth Institute because I told Vern, hey, I'm going to stop doing coaching or decrease my coaching and I'm going to go more online. Okay. And Vern said, hey, come and do it in English. And I was like, no, I'm not, like, that's not my realm, right? I, I speak Spanish. No one knows me outside of Latin America. I'm going to do it in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And Vern's like, no, no, let's do it worldwide. Let's do it in English. You and I will partner. You will run it. I'll bring you all my friends, all the other thought leaders. Let's build it. Wow. So I said, great. And he was living in Barcelona back then. Yeah, so yeah. he said, flew to Bar- fly to Barcelona. Let's have a two or three day strategy. So I flew to Barcelona. We spent three days just talking about strategy and how to build it and everything. And we came back with a business plan and run it. Wow. So this so this was 2003. You started as a as a coach. Oh, so it was it was 2012. So the first class we run was Top Reading 2011. 2011. Uh, December okay. 2011. Wow. Uh, okay. We ran the first class. So you th- you'd had two years working as a CEO coach before that, and then you effectively decided really to try and take it online. And this story then unfolded about how can you package all this information into a, an on- online portal effectively. And the idea is to be able to give the same experience that people were having in the US with thought leaders, but in a price and format that makes sense for mid-market yeah. companies. Okay. Um, in the case of scaling up, uh, as an example, I was flying all over Latin America and I was telling people, my, and I, we always teach scaling up with a slight... Uh, adjustment based on our experience and culture and everything. And people always said, hey, but Vern said this, or the book said this, and you said this, and all like, yeah, but Latin America. So we have these adjustments. Yeah. And I said, hey, imagine instead of me flying all the time, I could send some videos and said, hey, Vern will teach you this. And then I'll moderate a discussion on how to implement in your company. Yeah. And that was kind of what started this. Yeah. And I love that story about, you know, effectively multiplying your own usefulness, effectively, because you can get out into all those clients. But they're learning it, we, you know, as we say in English, from the horse's mouth, you're understanding it directly. Um, and I think, you know, getting, getting that delivery from Vern, but then you could provide coaching for them, which is your neat, unique way, and adapting and it to the individual. That's great. And adapting to the region and language that we need to do it. In Latin America, there's certain differences of how you implement or, or adaptations. Okay. And Vern teaches scaling up the way it is. And then we just came and have a conversation on how to adapt it, how to culturally make it more relevant, and how to help the team get on board. 
Yeah. So you mentioned just now that when you were when you were flying around Mexico and you're doing your 200,000 miles in the, in the traveling, um, people weren't reading the books. So what did you do differently with Growth Institute to help to you know, ensure people learned it and actually used the content? Because obviously there's a big difference between picking up the book and not reading it and actually getting online with this other material and seeing it for real. What, what had to happen? So um, we started having a, a lot of discussions with Vern. And by the way, Vern, I think in 2001, did his first course in video, but he was not scaling up. He was top grading right, and right. uh, Lee Weiss uh, and Victoria Medbeck negotiations, uh, high-stake negotiations. So yeah. Vern, same story. He was teaching this company in Europe um, and he used to go every six months, every year to teach to the company. And they always said, hey, now help us bring Brad Smart. And then how, how can you help us bring Victoria Medbeck? And Vern did, did these video courses in, in CD uh, of high-stake negotiation and top grade. Yeah, uh, okay. And that's kind of what started his mind, and then we brought it online. But yeah. let, let, me, let me bring this, uh, the model, that that's why this is important. And I'll start with some stats. If you go to the MOOCs, the Coursera's and all these kind of uh, online massive courses, the completion rate is around 3%. Okay. If you go to Udemy, all these companies that sell um, what they call uh, on-demand learning. Yeah. And they have millions of courses on on-demand learning. The completion rate of those courses is around 15%, one five. Okay. At the Growth Institute, we teach what we call the hybrid method of learning. So you have first the videos directly with the thought leader. Then you have group coaching calls. Um, so a coach will guide you through the process of how to implement. So every week you get an email saying, hey, this week, it's all about getting your VHAC. Go and see this video and then come to a call with a coach. And we have group coaching calls. And then in the case of scaling up, we have masterminds. We put, so imagine a class, we get 150, 160 executives going through the class together. Then we put them in groups of 10 with a coach and they have four coach-led masterminds. Okay. So they have a deep dive of hour and a half talking about each of the four decisions but mostly what they're seeing, how they're gonna implement, what are they looking in their control, culture, country, whatever. And people really like that. They said, hey, I learned from Vern. Then I got the coach to guide me yeah. on the process of how to implement. Yeah. But then I had a conversation with someone at my same level of knowledge, implementing like me, the other side of the world in a different industry. And they said, well, this is what I heard. And this is what I did. Oh, and they said, that's when I really get the content. Yeah. I love that. So you're getting, you're getting that, that knowledge from Vern, and then you're working in your mastermind group. So you're talking to people who are going through the same process as you, and it doesn't matter where they are, but they're actually going through that same experience. That's great. Really interesting great. program. And, and uh, the completion rate, it's around 75, 80%. Wow. So our graduation rate, and for us, graduation is that you fill out your one page strategic plan complete. Mm -hmm. And you send it to the faculty or you send it to the coach. If you do not provide your one-page plan complete, for us, it's not a completed course. Yeah. In scaling up, we have like 65, 70% completion rate. Wow. Because all the hand-holding, all the process, everything. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, can, I can attest this because obviously as a scaling up coach, when I started my scaling up journey, which was November 2020, so just over a year ago, um, obviously because of the pandemic we couldn't meet face to face there were no physical summits so all of my learning um, was through the growth institute 
that's how I brought in my knowledge of, of scaling up. Obviously, I've got the book as well. Um, but the key was around using the Growth Institute and going through the videos with Vern teaching us direct. And you mentioned about Victoria Medvet, uh, high stakes negotiation and top grading. Those are part of the program that I was using to do my training. But then you have a conversation with a coach coaching you on how to coach the material. Yeah. But you have to first learn the material. It's best to learn it directly from Vern. Yeah. But then the, the, the conversation with other, the other coach coming in and the guide coach that guides you through the certification, that's what really adds value on how to teach it, um, what's the right process, things like that. Yeah, I love that. So, so there's a real thing, this hybrid learning. And as you say, you know, something like Coursera is a 3% learning and a, a completion rate, but you've got 75 to 80% or 65% to 80% in, in scaling up. So the process is proven. So actually by having this um, on-demand learning that people can adapt to themselves and they've got the mastermind and the coach with them actually enables them to, to take it in and learn it at their own rate. And they can go back to it time and time again to hear it again. And, and also what I've noticed as well, a lot of the Growth Institute programs are then updated to bring the content up to date on a regular basis as well. So Vern, in the nine years we've been in operation, we record the course three times. So every two and a half, three years, we re-record the course. Salim Ishmael, we've done, we recorded four times every two years because his material changes a lot. Yeah, yeah, um, okay. So okay. it's really important that we bring the material and make it live, but most importantly, relevant on the yeah. time. Yeah. And as you see, scaling up, scaling up doesn't change that much. What changed a lot is the stories of how companies implement scaling up. So every year we get new stories and we bring new stories to the class. Yeah. And you mentioned about Salim, exponential um, organizations in terms of helping them build. But actually, you're right. There's stories that we can bring into life now of how that's been implemented. So I can understand why he's had to go through and actually update the material on a regular basis. And, and let me tell you a quick story as an example. I sat down with Salim Ishmael. I went through Singularity University 2013. And I went to and I was learning from all the professors and all that. And then I had a conversation with Salim one day, pretty late at night. And, um, and by the way, that's Salim's best class. He has a program called Meaning of Life. Okay. That he, he teaches, he used to teach a singularity at nights. So they said, hey, the class ends like at six and you have dinner and kind of a, an early night and just people mingle out and stuff. And uh, Salim one night said, hey, if you want to talk about the meaning of life, meet me at this classroom bring a lot of drinks and we're going to be there for many hours and usually you, you start like 9 or 10 p.m and go to like 4 or 5 a.m just talking about meaning of life everyone gets really drunk it's it's the best class i've taken with salim wow wow so in one of these classes salim tells that he's writing a book called exponential organizations and it's how to apply everything you learn at singularity so i come to him and said i want to buy your rights Wow. of online education and he said what do you mean and i was like you're going to sell your rights of the book paper to a publisher i want to do a contract to teach your stuff online uh, and salim was like what do you mean like and i was like you teach singularity this is how it's going to look in the future and he said okay when i publish a book i'll let you know wow. so when he publish a book he gives me a call said i'm ready and we build the first course lovely and, and it's interesting because a lot of people, you know, we all, we all have used online platforms in the last 19 months with the pandemic across the world. But actually for people to actually have that type of thing in the past, you've got an amazing ability to bring Salim Ishmael's material to the world. You've got, he's got the book and you've got the online. So you've got that multiplication of how the learning can be delivered for people. And for someone like that, 
it's actually an amazing opportunity to get your material out there on multiple platforms. And as an example, Salim, uh, Vern, and several other leaders give live Q&A sessions just to students. So if you come to Salim's class, the courses teach by his coaches and, yeah. and his yeah. faculty. But Salim comes for two hours Q&A and sits down in the Zoom like this and Vern. Wow. And like, just the power of being able to ask Vern or Salim for two hours, yeah. probably yeah. 50 or 100 students together or yeah. executive, yeah. just have a conversation. Yeah. People say like, it's great just to be able to have that connection. And you won't be able to have the question. If you go see Salim or Vern to us, an audience, like he speaks for 45 minutes or an hour, then they do two or three questions and then he's off, right? He will spend two hours having a real life conversation. With yeah, I, lo I love that. And, and I love the fact that you can actually get someone like him in the room, having that conversation. It helps him get the material out, but actually people learn from it just by being there. And I think that's a really powerful piece. Um, so, so tell me about, from your perspective, there's an entrepreneurial nature here. You've, you've taken this, this growth institute concept, you've built it up, and I'd love to come back to that, but I'd love to go back in time slightly before we do that. Daniel, you've built other businesses. You've, you know, this is, this is something which you've been on a journey through. Are there any other business experiences which you believe have really enabled you to create Growth Institute in such a, be such a successful business as it is today? So let me tell you a quick story first. And this is my first startup, my real startup. I had, so when I was a kid, I sold t-shirts, had an aquarium. Uh, I did all this kind of stuff, right? But when I, so I went to college, uh, I studied industrial engineering in Monterey Tech. Okay. And as my last three years in college, I worked for a brokerage house. So I was, I was very entrepreneurial and I wanted to do another company. And really all my companies that I did, I was terrible because I was not a very disciplined entrepreneur. But most importantly, they distracted me from school a lot. And my father was very worried about it. So I told my father that I was thinking of doing a new company. And uh, my father gets worried and calls my older brother and said, hey, your little brother's trying to do another business. Please get him a job. So he at least has a desk for him to do his homework. So my brother that lived also in, in Monterey uh, calls a friend that works in a brokerage house and said, hey, can you please get my brother, no pay, no nothing, just get him in so you have a desk and he learned something. And uh, they gave me a job in a brokerage house in the yeah. trading board. So I used to trade stocks from like 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. Uh, and then go to school at the afternoon. Wow. But that gave me a really important view of how the world of stocks and business work. I was an engineer. I had no idea how big businesses work. And I've done a couple of t-shirt business and stuff. So I didn't understand how business worked. And when I was there, I started going to the analyst calls and the yearly uh, presentations of the big companies in Mexico okay. being public. I begin trading uh, options and calls and puts in the US stock market. And it was kind of a really big window into, the, into how businesses work. Yeah. And then when I, when I graduate from uh, college, uh, my first job was to work for the Mexican consulate in Hong Kong. Um, okay. So I went to Hong Kong for two years. There was one job position that was opening for two years because it was for the transition of, uh, you know, Hong Kong went from England to China. Yeah. 1997, I was hired as the Mexican representative for the liaison of the Mexican government and, you, and Chinese government for that year. Wow. So I was there for a year before and then a year after the transition. Interesting. And it was fascinating. Yeah. I opened the, 
a world to Asia that I had no idea about yeah. Asia. Yeah. I was, for me, I was in Mexico and I was looking to the US and the US was like the biggest market and biggest companies. And I remember I was packing my bags the night before I was going. And I was pretty nervous. I was going the other side of the world. It was first time kind of being far away from my parents for a long time. Yeah. And my father came to my room and said, how are you? And I was like, I'm pretty scared. This I'm going to the other side of the world. And my father said, don't worry. Like if, if, when you realize Hong Kong is world-class first, like it's, you will be surprised how yeah. brilliant that country is and trading and all that. So it was another great uh, story. Love it, love it. But then I was reading all the magazines. This was 1997-1998. So I was reading all the magazines of the kids in, in the US doing internet companies and making millions. So one day I got a bad day in job in my job in, after two years and resigned to my job. Called my parents, said, I'm going back. I just resigned. And my father said, what for? And I was like, I'm going to do an internet company. 1999. 1998 was this. 98. Was, okay. Okay. Really early. It was really early. Uh, Netscape was already public, and all this internet uh, was booming. And because I was far away, my only connection to Mexico and my friends was internet. So I was very versed in, in email and all these kind of things. Um, so I resigned, come back, and I said, "Okay, what do I know?" And I knew finance because I had worked three years in this oh, brokerage. Trading, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was in Hong Kong. I was trading stocks in Hong Kong. Uh, just, I loved it. It was fun. So I said, okay, what's going on in the world around online trading and uh, the internet? Yeah, and yeah. you had E-Trade being a really, really big. Uh, I remember success. that. Yeah. So I got a meeting in E-Trade, went to the US and said, hey, let me open your operations in Mexico. And they said, no, Mexico is going to be like our 40th country to open. It, Mexico, even though it's top 12 or 13 country in the world in, in GDP, the stock market's a very stock, small stock market. So it's like 40 size stock market in the world. So they said, it's going to take us five years or 10 okay. years. So I went to the uh, authorities and asked for a brokerage license to do my own brokerage house. And they said, you're 22 years old, 23. Like, we're never going to give you a license. We just give license to bankers. <laughs> so bring us a gray hair banker and we'll give you a license. So I remember I came back home and I was kind of depressed because my two ways of opening this were shut down. And my father said, hey, let's do an inventory of your skills and try to figure out what can you do with your skills. Okay. So we had a long conversation around that. And he helped me realize that when E-Trade wanted to come and operate in Mexico, they will need two things. A group of clients that know how to trade stocks online and a group of employees to run their operations. Back in 1998, imagine how many people in Mexico knew how to program on the internet and were experts yeah. in finance. Yeah, no. very few. So I rallied three friends and we opened the first FinTech in Mexico in history, 1998. Wow. We put the stock quotes uh, online 1998 uh, of the Mexican market, and that just blew up. Um, um, so we we were the first company to put stock quotes, finance, yeah. trading games, like a Yahoo Finance yeah. that you could have your portfolios and everything. We built all that for the Mexican market, 1998, 1999. Wow! And um, we got very early acquired by a competitor in Argentina. So there was someone very similar to me in Argentina. And he just raised $8 million from JP Morgan and Chase and wanted to do a $50 million round. 
But Chase said, you could not be the leader in Latin America if you don't have Mexico and Brazil. If you understand Latin America, Mexico and Brazil are the two really, really big economies. All the rest are much, much smaller. Um, so he said, open operations in Mexico and Brazil, be the leader in Mexico and Brazil, and we'll give you $50 million to go to the next round. Wow. Wow. So he said, instead of building it, I'm going to buy it. So he called me. I was the biggest one and the only one in Mexico. And he said, hey, I'm going to raise $50 million next week. You want to be against me or with me? And I was like, okay, what's the price? Yeah. I love <laughs> so the guy did a, did a great selling job. Um, he gave me stock of new company, everything. Yeah. Did the same thing in Brazil. And after we signed Brazil and, and Mexico, we signed the contract in a week. And then we flew to New York and said, hey, Argentina. And by the way, he had already acquired prior to us uh, Chile and Venezuela. Okay. And then Brazil and Mexico. Now we have operations in five countries. And we said, JP Morgan, we're ready. Help us raise a round of financing. And wow. we end up raising 53 million. Uh, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Microsoft, Intel, um, uh, Telmex. Um, it was amazing round of investors. Oracle invested in us. Uh, and we grew really, really big, 1,200 employees, and then That's sold right. it to Banco Santander. Yes. I love that as a story because there's a real passion in that. And I love that, you know, some, you know, that emergent story about you hadn't planned that. And I think this is what I love about the entrepreneurial journey I'm hearing there is, you know, from your experiences, Hong Kong, recognizing what you were doing there, but actually coming back to Mexico, looking to do it. And, as you, and, and I love the bit as well, you talked about your father doing a skills inventory of you. And say, hey, what, what, what have you got that you can make work? So to bring that together, I think, is such a powerful story. And then fast forwarding that, you became the, the bit of the jigsaw that was missing for the company. If they wanted to open up, they needed to get into Mexico and Brazil. You, you were the only one in Mexico. So actually, so you had such a powerful position there. So lovely, lovely story. So uh, and in this one last story here uh, as, a, as a business opportunity. So there was, in, you know, Reuters in the US, right? They, they saw these screens that they, the traders use. Yeah. In Mexico, there was a uh, company of screens like that called Infocell. So through connections, I met the CEO of Infocell and said, hey, I want to buy the feed from you so I could put it online. And he said, I'm not going to give you my, like, it's the chicken, the kitchen sink. It's like the center of my operation. And I charged thousands of dollars for the screens. And you want to give it for free online? And I was like, it's going to be for free online in six months or a year. Yeah. You do it with me or someone else is going to do it. Love. So it took me probably six months or a year to have a negotiation with this guy. And he said, okay, great. I'll give it to you, but just you. So I got exclusive from him to be able to have the, the feed online. Wow. So when, when this company came to Mexico, they went to sit down with InfoCell and said, we want to buy, buy your feed. And InfoCell said, we can't. We have an exclusive with Finances Web. Amazing. I mean, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's, there's a real story there in terms of, you know, creating that, that, that ability for you to attract people who needed what you were providing, but actually locking out some of the competition at the time. So, so once you sold out of that, so effectively looking at you, you'd raised 53 million, you went to New York, you had that, that you know, you had the, the, the dice that needed to be played. What happened next? Because obviously this was a journey in that case. Coming back to 2000, we had the, the, the internet boom of 2002, 2002, 2003. Where did the next bit go? Because we're on a trajectory up at this stage. So, um, so I do that. I, it was four years of a lot of stress um, between building it and then selling it and then staying. 
in the company. It was like a four-year journey. And I probably work 15 hours a day average, including weekends. It was, it was, it was long. And I just got married. I haven't really spent a lot of time with my wife. I remember I went on my honeymoon. And during my honeymoon, my CFO had a crash and died. So it was, wow. it was complicated. Wow. Um, so it was four years of a lot of stress. And uh, I left four years after. Um, and I told my wife, hey, we have money in the bank, no kids. Let's just spend some time, you and I. And she was like, what do you want to do? And I was like, let's travel the world. Okay, nice. I wanted to go back to business school, by the way. I wanted to then learn how to do business internationally because I hired at, at growth at uh, Finance Web and Patagon. I hired a lot of MBAs. Guys that had graduated from Harvard, uh, MBA and Stanford and all that, and they were working for me. And they were using all this jargon and had this capacity to do PowerPoints that I had no idea. I was a kid just coming out of industrial engineering. Like, like if you asked me to do a PowerPoint or run a, a financial projection on, scale, on Excel, I had yeah. no idea. Lovely. So I told my wife I want to go back to business school and um, I want to go to the US. And this was April 2000 and um, April 2002. Okay. And already the application process was gone for that year. So I had to apply in December to go next August. So I had like a year and a half of a gap. And I said, it's too long of a time of not doing anything, but it's too short of a time to do any business. Okay. okay. So I told my wife, why don't we go and travel? And she was like, okay. No children going to so Put the house for rent, got someone from Nestle to pay us dollars uh, for a house or a house in Mexico for rent. And we just traveled for 16 months. Lovely. And, and a great story there about, you know, that beginning. I'm thinking, you know, I, I did my MBA in 2000. I graduated in, uh, in December 2002. So I remember what the world was like at that time. You know, we'd been through a lot of turmoil in the world you know, with, the, with the, the Second Gulf War. Um, we, were, we were on the boom of the internet, internet rise at that stage as well. So you're off traveling. You then went off and did your, your MBA. Which, which school did you choose and how did you come up with that school? So I went to Babson College, uh, Wesley, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. And it's, it's number one in, for entrepreneurship. And when I was there, it has been number one like four years in a row. Yeah. And today it's been like 25 years in a row. Number one entrepreneurship. Wow. Uh, great school, very entrepreneurial. And by the way, I did apply to Harvard and Stanford and I was rejected um, for many reasons. Uh, and I had a, Stanford was my, my big number one. I have okay. to accept. And sorry, Babson, if they hear this, but Stafford was by, by far my number one. And I, through connections and everything, I got a meeting when after I was rejected. And I said, hey, you have to really explain why this is not right. And the lady said, you're too old, you're too experienced. You will not be open to learning the way we want. So sorry, wow. you cannot. And my, my GMAT rating and, and, and school uh, uh, grades were not very good. And okay. he, he said, and you're gonna lower our averages. So thank you very much, but no. <laughs> and Babson being such an entrepreneurial school said, hey, we don't care about that. We care that you're an entrepreneur, you understand this. Yeah, that's what they so want. Have your MBA here. So that, that's a really, really big point for Babson yeah, that they right. realized and understood that said, hey, he was working in Wall Street and doing companies while he was going through college. No wonder he got bad grades. Yeah, and I love that. Isn't it? I, I, when I finished my MBA, I, I decided at the time that an MBA was the death of entrepreneurship for a lot of people. 
because it taught you how to be very risk averse in terms of the process you had to go through. But I love that in terms of Babson, it was about entrepreneurship. That's what they were trying to drive there. And they appreciated the fact that you had that background of being on Wall Street trying to raise money. And that's why, you know, raising 53 million uh, as, as a young guy is actually really impressive to get there. They Imagine who goes to the MBA after raising 53 million. So very few people had that experience. And yeah. by the way, the hardest thing was not raising the 53. Was going to go through the due diligence with JP Morgan. They sent me five analysts for two months to my office and they dig in every rock of the company. Wow. It was crazy. Um, they, they visited my house. Like you can't imagine. It was, yeah. I, I've never been uh, scratched and really yeah. understood about yeah. me and my company, about anything like that. Love um, that was the toughest part of raising the money. And I love that as a story, isn't it? Because it's that due diligence that's behind it. There's a bit I want to go back to, actually. You mentioned about um, the stress. And I'm thinking, you know, fast forward a few years, you know, 2009, you became a CEO coach. You went through that experience. And there's a bit of your life I want to come back to at some stage. But just touch on a piece there. You talked about, you know, you, you spent four years of hard work, high, high stress. You talked about your CFO dying while you're on honeymoon. And um, this is a story that a lot of entrepreneurs go through where they've got that stress, where they're trying to run a business, they're trying to scale a business. But it, the weight's on their shoulders. And I think this is something, when we talk about scaling up now, is you know, look at how do we help people scale their business so they can get their time back? You know, I, I often talk to people about more, 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 more time, less stress, more money, more fun. But for a lot of business owners, it's that stress is part of it. So how did you cope with that during that period of time? And what would you have done so differently now? If you, if you see the logo of Growth Institute, it says scale impact and reduce drama. Yeah. Yeah. And we, I always tell people, everyone tells you a nice thing about scaling. No one tells you the hard thing about scaling. Yeah. Uh, like, no, no one tells you your CFO is going to die in a car crash when you're on honeymoon. Like, it, it's, it's those kind of things just turn things ugly. Uh, you, they don't tell you about how you get sued by employees uh, for miscommunications and you have to spend all this money with lawyers. Um, all those kind of things, a lot of stress and drama. Yeah. And wow. we call it drama. And people say, like, what is that? And I was like, everything that happens in business is drama. <laughs> like, yeah. like um, uh, just people crashing, not going to meetings, um, all those kind of things. The employees resigning, uh, people stealing from your company. That's normal. It's part of life. Yeah. So, so there's a real experience there again. So, so I'm hearing now, you know, you entered your MBA. You had experience of raising money. You had experience of running a business and all of the other drama that went on to help you get there as well. So it's so amazing life experience to help you build the next business. It was, it was huge to uh, build the first, the next business and, and growth was that, but most importantly, what the executives appreciate was that was the re being real in classes and being real yeah. in teaching what really happens. Yeah. Yeah. So, with that real experience. Yeah. So as an example, I, I tell people every time we teach scaling up, I said, hey, when you teach scaling up, don't be uh, 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 surprised when someone comes and resigns. I said, what do you mean? And I was like, every time I implement scaling up, someone's going to come and resign. And I said, why? Because there used to be flying below the radar, and now you're going to put all these KPIs and data and dashboards. Yeah. They're going to feel uncovered. They're going to resign. Yeah. I said, like, why are you telling me that? And I was like, that's what's going to happen. Yeah. Every time we've implemented this getting up, at least one employee has resigned. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you how it's going to be. They're going to start attacking scaling up. They're going to tell you they don't have time, that the meeting seats are a problem, blah, blah, blah. And you're going to say, I'm sorry, 
the system's going to stay, we're going to implement, we're going to move forward, you have to kind of get on board. Yeah. And then they will start reporting themselves red on the dashboards. Yeah. And they will resign. And I think it's interesting, isn't it? I think there's there's a number of things I've heard around that as well. There's the that, that story about reporting themselves red on the dashboard when they and they realize that they're the they're the weak link in the chain. Yeah. They're the bit, the, the critical impact that needs to be removed to actually move things forward. And actually it's opening themselves up to that. Um, I think so. One day I, I told the story in a presentation that I was giving, and I got a call from a family business. And it was like a third generation family business. And you had all these nephews working in the business together. And the main guy running it calls me and said, hey, you know what? I have all my cousins here. And half of the ones, they do real work. The other half, they do no work. So help me implement scaling up so they leave on their own. Yeah. Because I could not fire my cousin. Like my grandma is going to die. But they know they need to go. So help me implement scaling up. Let's send them the message and they will leave. And magically, after implementing scaling up, Six months after, one of the cousins came and said, you know what, this is not for me. I want to go and do my MBA in Harvard. I just yeah. applied and I'm out. Oh, great, we'll pay you, Harvard, go. Get out of here. Yeah. But hey, that, that's, that's life. That's the reality. I, I love like, that. Um, um, these kind of stories we tell in the classes, we, we share with our students and our executives. Mm -hmm. And that's what they appreciate. They said, hey, you're not just a faculty professor teaching by reading a book. You guys lead real examples of how to implement these things in companies. Yeah. yeah. And that's something I really appreciate uh yeah. from I think that's really interesting, isn't it? Is that being there, seen her and done it and got the got the, the war wounds and the war stories to tell about how to make these things come alive. Because as you said, you know, uh, scaling with impact and reducing drama, it's actually about that story you can tell about the drama that's going to come about. And the fact that you are going to lose employees as a result of doing this. And that's yeah. a good thing because those that are going are the ones that aren't right for your business anyway. That's great. And I tell them, hey, whenever they said, hey, I'm going to go, whatever, you said, thank you. Give them a hug. Hope God. Yeah. Wish you well to go on your next PT journey. So, so let's fast forward. Somewhere else. Let, let's just fast forward in that case. So, so you, you've got your MBA. You've been on that journey again. Um, there's, there's some time here where you're setting up other businesses. Um, did you jump straight into the, 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 the world of coaching and CEO coaching? What, what was the no. piece in between? So after Babson, um, I said, I proved myself as an entrepreneur in Mexico. Now I'm going to prove myself in the U.S. Okay. And I moved to Austin and I opened a Hispanic mortgage bank to give loans to undocumented Hispanics. Wow. So through, I came to the U.S. Uh, after Babson, I moved to Austin and I wanted to open a mortgage bank to Hispanics. I said, hey, I understand Hispanics. They're my people. And I understand finance better than anyone. So I'm going to do this. So I opened a mortgage bank and started getting loan officers and all that. And then I opened a title company. And then through a friend in uh, San Diego, uh, he got a line of credit with Goldman Sachs, $500 million for undocumented Hispanics in the US. And he gave me the license for Texas. So we started growing like crazy because who was giving loans to undocumented Hispanics? And by the way, we're giving 10, 11% rate, but that was the only option in the market. So wow. we're giving 100, 150 loans a month. Wow. And then one day, 2007, early 2007, we get a call from Goldman and said, no more. And we said, what do you mean no more? I have 120 employees, 300 uh, uh, mortgage on the pipeline. We build a business. I raise yeah. money from investors, everything. And they said, no more. We thought we we're going to be able to flip the portfolio in the market. And the subprime started going under. 
And you guys are the subprime of subprime. There was no one more subprime than us because we were giving loans to people that had not, not no working uh, visa or citizenship uh, or anything. Yeah, yeah. So we got we got shut down immediately. Lost everything. It was a really, really, really bad. Well, bad so this period. is two thousand seven. I'm guessing. Two thousand seven. Yes. So if you remember, all the financial crisis came two thousand eight. Yeah. But the the subprime mortgage went under a year before. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, of I, of the subprime to hit the prime market. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think in the U in the UK and Europe, I think we were we started to see the downtrend appearing in the news in in February 2007, but it wasn't until the following year that the economy started to be, be hit by this as well. But I was in the market. Indeed, my morning read it was a page called Mortgage Implodometer, and it was all the news of all the mortgage companies going on. Wow, it was wow. it was really bad. Like so that's a guys, scary time. A year after, we, we got destroyed a year before. So actually, so you've now got experience again. So, so now you're being, you've, you've been shut down. I'm assuming you got shut down with quite a bit of debt on your hand as well, because you've given out I, a number of mortgages. I lost all my money. And everything that I had, I put it in to try to save the company. And one day I said, I just can't anymore. I need to uh, shut this down. So I went to my investors and said, guys, we, it's time to shut down. And I explained why. We had a lot of analysis. We... We had like a four or five hour meeting. Wow. And at the end, my investor said, fine, we're okay. Let's shut this down. And I said, by the way, for me to shut down, it will take me a million dollars to shut down. I had offices and let go of employees and everything. And my investors are like, we put our money, we lost our money. That's on you. You walked so, away with a million in debt. So I came back home and I told my wife, well, they accepted to close the company. They're not going to sue or anything. We just, they lost the money. But we have more problems. First, I have to pay the million dollars and I don't have anything. So I'm a million dollars negative in my, in my assets. But second, our work visa is tied to the company. So the company is going to be shut down. We need to get out in a week. So you're stuck in Texas at this day, but you now need to get back to Mexico. That's right. So I have a couple of weeks to shut down the operation, move my house, sell my house and move back to Mexico oh my God. with a million dollars in debt. Oh my God! No, was, nice. I, I feel for your wife at this stage as well because she's she's carrying you with her. We we had a lot of divorce conversations. Yeah, uh, they have to say those two years were not easy. Wow, were 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 tough two years. And this is the drama again, isn't it? You know, this is the drama of running a business. This is the reality. You know, the, the, that that depression that we hit in two thousand and seven, two thousand eight, carried through to two thousand and twelve, and a lot of businesses went under at that stage but you were one of the early casualties. So you've got the financial hit of that. You've also got the impact on your life, having to move from Texas down to Mexico, back home again, um, being literally evicted from the US because you weren't allowed to stay there anymore. I had no visa, yeah. Wow. And I, I went back to Mexico, got a job. And by the way, and this is another life lesson. So I go on there, I start shutting everything down and I, I begin telling some friends, I mean, I'm going back to Mexico, I need to get a job, blah, blah. And I begin getting phone calls about people saying, hey, you're okay, I could help you here, whatever. People begin helping around. And I got a call from Vern. Um, by the way, for this at this moment, yeah, I've met Vern at Burning of Giants, the program that Vern used to teach at MIT. I'm a student from that program. And then I went to some of Vern's summits and just so Vern knew me about this entrepreneur that was on, on his summits and his events. And he hears through a, a good friend of Vern 
became a good friend of mine. Um, and he and I talk often, and I told him that I had gone under and I was having a really rough time. Yeah. And tells Vern, and Vern calls me and said, how are you? And I remember I cried and complained for like 45 minutes on the phone. And at the end, Vern said, are you done? And I'm like, what do you mean if I'm done? Are you done complaining? And I was like, okay, yes, why? And he said, why don't you become a scaling up coach? But that back then was a good sales coach. And I was like, come on, like, I don't trust myself as an entrepreneur. How can I teach even anyone else? Yeah, yeah. And he said, that's precisely why. Because all your experiences, you have to share with other entrepreneurs to make sure it doesn't happen again. Wow, wow. And I said, hey, Ron, I really appreciate but I need to get a job. I need to pay for the school for my daughter. Like, I need to pay rent. Like, I need to just pay my basics. I need mm-hmm. to get a job. And, and also, there was a cost of license to pay to Vern to be a certified coach. Yeah, yeah. And Vern said, I'll even send you a plane ticket. I'll pay for everything. You'll pay me when you make money. Oh, oh, Vern, sorry, Vern said this, that it was very interesting. He said, okay, go back to Mexico, get a job. Let me just ask one question. And I was like, yeah. How are you going to pay a million dollars in debt with a salary? <laughs> like, I have no idea. Yeah. But I haven't even thought about that. I, was, I didn't care about that. I just care about putting food in the table for my family. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Vern said, hey, why don't you teach over the weekends coaching and all the money that comes from coaching, you pay your debt. Wow. And I was like, that's a great idea. <laughs> so you've now got a day job and a weekend job. That's correct. So I was coaching at nights and weekends. And six months into it, I was making more money in coaching than my job. So I resigned to my job and went full-time coach. Wow. So, so interesting. Ver, Vern here has got a real insight into you, isn't he? You, you had met him through the Birthing of Giants program. You, you had had conversation with him. You had, yeah. you had explained the problem. He told you to, to get over it literally and move on. Um, yeah. But he had opened your eyes up to this world of coaching, actually helping other business owners, because you've got this experience that you brought with you here in terms of you know, ranging from Hong Kong, setting up the business in Mexico, selling it, it, making the money, doing the Babson College. You've got this great experience coming together, but you've never coached. So how did you find it as, as a coach? Because that's a very different role, teaching other people how to do it, as opposed to doing it and living it. What so was- it, was, it was weird at the beginning, but something interesting happened um, that I hadn't realized until that happened. So in the past, because I've been a successful entrepreneur in Mexico and Latin America, I've been in cover of magazines and all this uh, course and stuff or presentations and panels and everything. I've got a lot of entrepreneurs calling me and asking me for help. And I was telling people what to do and kind of guiding them and investing with them before I lost the money and everything. And they used to kind of say, hey, because you're a successful entrepreneur, you have to give me advice and you should not charge or there's no compensation because you're... And after I became a coach, I said, okay, I'm going to send you an invoice. And people said like, why? Well, I'm a coach. Like I have a license and I do all that's my job now. And people were like, okay, that's fine. So I, he was already giving a lot of advice and telling people what to yeah. do and how to do it. They were the books, but I was not allowed to charge. It was because I was a successful entrepreneur and you just can't do it. Yeah. And now people said, well, you're a coach. You have a licensed coach. Okay. And they start sending checks. So it was, it was amazing what, happened but i was already doing not in a formal way but in an informal way yeah but i was already coaching and, and giving a lot of advice to entrepreneurs yeah and it was game changer uh, i have to say it was game changer for me a game changer in terms of the way you saw the saw the world or the way you coached what was it what was the game changer so, piece so in the case of making money with my time and my advice yeah being okay. an entrepreneur i used to travel a lot and give presentations and 
they invite me to conferences and panels and all that. And I yeah. never charged. It was, it was me being an entrepreneur. Yeah. Because I'm a successful entrepreneur. I have to give this time. It's part of part I'm of being. It. Yeah, part of doing it. And then people were saying, hey, I want you to come and give a conference here and we'll pay you $10,000 for a lecture. And I was like, two years ago, I gave a lecture and you didn't pay <laughs> <For anything. free. laughs> I, I had to pay my plane ticket. And now you're playing plane ticket, hotel and $10,000. And I was like, yeah, you're a coach. Okay, I'm in. <laughs> wow, wow. So, so there's amazing transformation there, isn't it? And you, you, you land in, in, in the scaling up world or Gazelle's world as it was at that stage. Um, you had Vern supporting you from the sidelines, wanting you to get going. You've got the clients there. Um, and, and then at this stage, you're then, you're then trading time for money, as I always call it. You're, you're, yep. you're working and you're only getting paid when you're coaching. So at some stage, you, as you mentioned, right at the beginning of this podcast, you talked about you were carrying the books around with you. You were flying 200,000 miles around, the, around the, the place trying to coach people. And you came up with this idea called Growth Institute. We came up with an idea about online learning. So there's a transformation in your journey there from being the doing coach to actually being the entrepreneur again, creating another portal, creating another system. And by the way, another life story here important because it, did not, it didn't happen like that. Yeah. So I go to Barcelona and Vern and I agree on all the process and everything and what we're going to do. And then Vern asks, okay, so who's going to run it? And I was like, what do you mean? I'm going to run it. And he said, you can't run it. You're very successful. You're coaching, you're traveling every week. How are you going to build a business if you're traveling and coaching clients all over the world? And I was like, I think you're right. <laughs> so I said, hey, let me call a friend. Okay. I call a friend that lived in Austin and said, hey, I just agree with Vern to do this. We need a co-founder and a CEO. Do you want to run it? And the guy said, will pay me a salary? Yeah. Will you like help me? And I was like, yeah, but I just don't expect me to be there. Like you and I are going to talk on the phone at 9 p.m. me from Colombia. But you're gonna to have to run day-to-day -day operations. And the guy said, I'm in. Wow. So the first CEO of Growth Institute was Juan Gonzalez. And Juan ran Growth Institute for three or four years until Growth Institute had enough revenue and, and money. Yeah. And I remember the call very vividly. Uh, Juan got it right and called me one day and said, Daniel, now it's time. You have to come back. Now, now, now it's time for you to be here. Yeah. It's time for me to leave now and start making more money because he was a startup. He was he got some stock and stuff, but he was not getting he such big money. Stories. It's time for me to go out and now start making real money. And yeah. it's time for you to come and be CEO. And I said, give me a couple of weeks, I'll be there. Wow. And that's how we did it. Yeah, but he really built the first five team members, hired the people, all the legal stuff, accounting, everything. Yeah. Everything was yeah. done by one. Uh, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because this is the thing, isn't it? You, you've, you're now starting up a business and actually you recognize that as entrepreneur, you couldn't do it all. Vern was right. Someone else had to run the business, get it going, but you could then step in at some stage to actually give it the next, next stage of its journey. Um, and, and I'm talking, I'm going to speak with Alex Faust uh, later on this podcast to talk about the next stage of the Growth Institute journey. So, so we'll pick up on that story. Um, by the way, Alex was hired by one, was not hired by me. Alex was an intern from UT Austin, hired by Juan. Uh, so I meet Alex as a, hey, here's the company, here's Alex. Um, and Alex, by the way, you, you'll learn on the trans transition. And I've told this to Alex many times. Growth Institute is alive because of Alex. Um, I'm, a, 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 I'm an entrepreneur, I'm traveling all the time and teaching and doing all yeah. these things. And the one that really kept the fire and get things done is Alex. Um, so we have a good conversation. And Alex came to Growth Institute being an intern 
from UT in marketing. Okay. And today he's head of operations of the company. Interesting. I love that story. And I love that transition. So Joan talked to me. He created the business originally. Alex came in. Alex is now COO running it. So you, you're effectively back in the business. So, so we're going to wrap up the podcast soon. And I think there's another podcast coming out of this because there's another story which I'd love to talk to you about, but not for today. Um, this next piece in that case, just to, just to wrap up, um, you've, you've stepped back in. Alex has come in. Where did you see Growth Institute going? Because obviously you've built a great business. At that point when you stepped back, what was your vision for it? Because I think this is a really key piece. So Vern and I always said that there's a lot of great content and tools and everything for people to start companies. Yeah. And then if you're doing above 10 million in revenue or 20, there's a lot of help and whatever. There's nothing in the middle. There's this no man's land between a couple of two, three million and 20. No one looks at you. Like you have to read the books of the big ones and adapt it to the small ones or get yeah. the books for entrepreneurs. And like there's this weird space between yeah. around 2 million and 20. And Vern said, hey, we need to create the space for these companies. Um, and today, probably 70% of our companies do between 2 and 20. Okay. But we have really big companies uh, taking classes. Air France have taken class with us. Um, we've got executives from Google taking class with us. Um, we have a lot of really big corporations that they just said, hey, this is the course I want to take. You guys are the only one teaching it and take the class with us. And we have some startups doing probably half a million or so. But okay. our like, sweet spot and our it's do, doing that. Yeah. And what people said, said, hey, you gave me the community and the space of companies like us having the same challenges. Um, and that we, we really value the community. Yeah. If you see the flywheel, uh, yeah. Our first entrance on the flywheel was the thought leaders. People that were fans of Vern, looking for Vern online, found their course, take the course, right? Yeah. Now it's changing a lot. And now people are coming because of the community. Because we have over 10,000 companies. We've trained over 50,000 executives of big market companies and say, hey, I want to go through the process, but I want to go through the process with companies that are doing the class with me. As an example, we had a lot of executives that they have a coach. And they also take the class just for the community to be able wow. to go together and learning with each other and having conversation yeah. and say, hey, the coach amazing. And by the way, having a coach, scaling up coach is the best thing you have to do to scale up a, a company. We, I, yeah. I, I've been doing it and I have a coach. I hire a coach for me. Um, it's like people said, but you're a coach. And I was like, yeah, but I cannot coach myself. I need yeah. a coach to coach me. Yeah. So uh, it, it, I, by far is the best. Uh, yeah, I love you. I'm glad you um, said that. <laughs> I, by far is the best option. Um, I would tell people, hey, get a coach and then your executives are in charge of implementing, send them to the class and get with that community and everything. And yeah. we have a lot of coaches saying, hey, I just engage a company, 100,000, 120,000, and I'm going to send, and they, with their money, send four or five people to come through the class and say, hey, the experience is going to be way better if we have both things. Yeah, so I yeah. strongly believe the best, um, the best experience is having both. Yeah, super. both and the online. So both together, effectively. And I think yes. that's a really powerful piece. Um, Daniel, I think we're going we're gonna to have to wrap up podcasts now because I know you're limited on time at this stage. Um, I, I would love another conversation at some stage with you because I think there's the next bit of the journey, which I'm sure Alex will be able to share some of in terms of your vision for the future. So I'd now like to hear that as a team. You're going to the other version of the operation. Now you're going to hear the other side, not on the entrepreneur, on the day-to-day -day reality the day -to -day and the drama of having a, a visionary entrepreneur that is running all the time 
and yeah. how he has kept the feet on fire to get things yeah. done. Yeah, and it's interesting you use, use the word flywheel, and I think about flywheel. You know, it's someone's got to keep that flywheel turning, and that's what Alex by sound of has done to keep that next stage. Yeah. yeah. So I've got one last question for you, which I I I, I don't know if you'll have a quick answer for, but the, the answer is if the great question is if you were to go back and give the young Daniel some advice to that 21 year old, 20, 20 year old in Hong Kong or wherever you were at this stage, what's the bit of advice you would give that young Daniel with the experience you've got now? Learn marketing and copywriting earlier. Learn I, marketing and copywriting. I've always said, ah, I could hire the marketing guys. No. It's like, like uh, the troubadour has to be like a, like a, a orchestra director. You're not the best piano player, but you understand how piano is played. Mm. You're not the best guitar player, but you understand how guitars are played. Yeah. Same thing happens in the business. And the hardest part that really scales companies is marketing. Hey, Vern, it's one of the three barriers. Mm. Mm. Um, and I, I was always saying, now you have to hire this guy and hire this in the ages and whatever. And one day I sat down, I was having dinner, lunch with a real marketer. And I was telling him all of this. And, and one, we're having lunch and having a conversation. He said, hey, can I tell you something you will not get offended? And I was like, of course not. What's up? And the guy said, you could not hire the marketer. You, yes, you're going to be able to hire them to the job. We have to understand them to be able to guide them correctly. So stop playing around. Get these books and give me like 10 marketing books and said, yeah. until you don't go through all of these books, don't hire anyone. That's great. And I love that story. it was looked tough. It was a tough pill, but he was right. Yeah, I, I love that story. I think there's a few things that come together from just talking to you now about the, the, the marketing, the copywriting, the experience, the, the drama that you go to building a business and having an entrepreneurial vision. Uh, and at some stage, I'd love to pick up on some of these other conversations with you. But this has been an amazing conversation, Daniel. And I, I really appreciate your time. And it's 8.30 in the morning in, uh, in Mexico City. You've got, got, got meetings to go to. I have a workshop, like 200 people in 25 minutes. <laughs> in that case, I'm going to let you go. But Daniel, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. I look forward to doing it again soon. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Same. Thanks for the invitation. Bye. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as I've enjoyed recording it. This is just one of the great conversations I've had the privilege of being part of since I started recording the Sparks Baconian podcast. So please, go back and listen to some of the others. There's some great content in there, some great contributors. And also, while you're at it, please leave a review of this show with your comments, because that helps other people like you find this content. And we want to bring about the change that we really know matters to people. It helps us grow. And also, think about what actions you want to take because there's no point just listening passively. We want you to pick it up and do something with it. So what are the three key things you want to do? I can't hold you accountable, but if you want to, drop me a note, phil at igniumconsult.com. We're always keen to listen to what you have to say and actually introduce guests to us that you think will bring relevance to other people. We wish you well. Give us a call. Let us know what you think. Give us a review. Thank you.